I want to begin today as we continue our series on sexuality. We have talked about the creation of sexuality and looked at the, how God made our sexuality to be used as a, this incredibly powerful thing, uh, man and woman, to come together to fill the earth with more men and women to exercise dominion over the earth, all to the glory of God. And our sexuality is the primary means by which that was to take place, to create a family, one man, one woman, a husband and a wife, where not only do they uh, give life uh, and, and bring about the, the creation of a new human being, but also nurture and raise that child in a godly home. So the goal was not just to fill the earth with anything, with anybody, but specifically God says that the marriage, the bond that was to be there between man and woman had a specific purpose to raise godly children to go exercise dominion in the earth. Then we looked at how sin corrupted that and how this powerful tool of our sexuality that was intended for the glory of God and for our good has been twisted. And like anything that's twisted, uh, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, and it's especially tr true when it comes to the power of our sexuality. If we look at human history, it is just filled with uh, how sexuality has driven uh, evil things and bad things. Now, it didn't, the good things, the good aspects of sexuality didn't go away, but now they've been corrupted. Now they've been twisted or perverted, and that continues in our day. And so this powerful tool that was given to be used for good things, it's, a, it's still just as powerful, but now it's used often for destructive things. And we've certainly seen uh, that uh, in our own day. We, it's been throughout human history, and in some ways it is magnified now, I think primarily because of increased media exposure, uh, makes things more accessible, that accessible than they would have been perhaps in days gone by. But essentially, the problem remains the same. The problem is us, first and foremost. And then it's not only me, it's not only you, but then collectively in society it becomes a problem so that uh, when we add the devil, uh, the world of flesh and the devil to the mix, then there are all kinds of things that fuel that fire, that feed uh, this corruption that's already in us. And so today I want us to begin to look at the redemption of sexuality. How do we reverse this? How do we go about seeing changes take place? Next week I want to look at some particular strategies about some things we can do in terms of the external things, but I want to begin at the, with the core of the problem, which is us. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 7. But fornication, and by the way, fornication, uh, the word here just has anything to do with sexual immorality. Any kind of sexual immorality falls under that heading. Uh, fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, and it groups those together, and interestingly, let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. That's, the, that's what's said over again. Are you thankful to God for what he's given you in, this, in these areas? For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, here's what, here's what you should conclude from these facts, do not be partakers with them. Now, this stark warning from Ephesians tells us uh, that what is at stake uh, when it comes to getting this wrong is our place in the kingdom of God. So for all those who are engaged in or flirting with any kind of sexual immorality, I would urge you to pay close attention. And notice that there is a cluster of related sins that are joined together in this passage. Fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, which are part of the package of sexual impurity. These are all forms of idolatry. They are worshiping a false god. And if you continue in these sins, you you will not be able to say you were not warned. And for those who would monkey with the word of God and try to justify their sexual immorality, you should be doubly warned. God will not be mocked. He is a jealous God. 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now this is not a passage that's talking about us not loving the creation, not the the physical world. God's called that good. But he is talking about the fallen world, the world of corruption, the world of lust, and uh, passion-driven living that is apart from the Word of God, that that we should have nothing to do with that. Purity is one of the qualities of holiness. In fact, it may be the one we think of most often if we say, you know, that person is holy. Uh, we might think in terms of purity. And that's a good, uh, very good parallel. There are other aspects of holiness. Holiness just means separateness, but purity is one of the ways that we're separate. There are other aspects that we could talk about, but again, it is certainly, purity is certainly one of them. Uh, as we read in First uh, Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, in other words, when you didn't know any better, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We're to be like our Heavenly Father. Hebrews 12:14 tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Again, these stark statements of scripture there's no soft edge there are no soft edges here god is pure he's clean he's sinless and all sin then is a matter of impurity right now we're focused on one type of impurity uh, that is sexual impurity but it's important to recognize for the sake of our current topic that impurity is not limited to sexual impurity so for example bible tells us that we can have unclean lips Our words can be unclean, filthy talk, and so forth. So there are other ways that our uncleanness may manifest itself, but since we're sexual beings, sexuality is one of the ways that uncleanness is often manifest. And so we want to look at this from two directions, from the inside out 
and, that, uh, uh, and then at the factors that are coming from the outside in, and how these two work together in concert to bring us down and to make things worse. And so we have our sins, we have other people's sins, we have the impurity of ourselves and the impurity of others, and of course the broader impurity that manifests itself generally in society. Now, we also want to draw a distinction between things like piety and pietism. It is important that we guard against becoming pharisaical in this. Piety is a good thing. Piety is holiness. Pietism is when we kind of uh, can make a god of, the, of that. And we have our little list of things to do, and if we can just get all that, we can pat ourselves on the back or, or, uh, or you know, say, look at me. Um, our temptation, I think, is to always want some kind of a list. Give me ten things I need to do to be pure. Our inner Pharisee is clever and knows how to get around a list by carefully defining words. Well, I do that. Um, and so technically, we come up with a list and we define it in ways that we can take care of it. So I set out to see how many boxes I can check and declare myself to be pure if in no one else's mind, at least in my own. And it becomes a means by which I can judge everyone else. But these issues, like so many other issues, are more complicated than that, and because wisdom is always more complicated than a list. We want to reduce things in such a way that we can feel good about ourselves, and yet we find that the problem is much more complicated than we imagined. It will require a more comprehensive plan if we are going to address the problem. So I want to challenge you today. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what temptations you may have had in the past or what temptations you're facing now or what temptations you'll face next week. But what we're about to do is look at what I, I believe is the core issue here, not just with sexual impurity but all kinds of impurity, but again, focused on this. We're the problem. What are we going to do about us? A natural man, according to Scripture, is a sinful man. And so sometimes people say, well, I'm naturally inclined to this, or I was made that way. Well, you really weren't. You know, Adam was made in holiness and righteousness, but sin changed all that. So yes, in one sense, you're made, you come into this world sinful, but that means you come into this world broken, not looking at things right. Your mind's affected, your body's affected, everything is affected. And, and therefore, I'm going to have to resist what are sometimes called natural desires. And, and we can parse this. There are certain natural desires that we're going to recognize are, are indeed godly and holy. But for a sinful person, natural desires can then begin to include lustful things, things that are not mine to desire. So Paul writes, in, in giving a long list of sins in 1 Corinthians, and let me say, one of the popular things to do these days is to say, oh, whether it's talking about this issue or a thousand other issues that come up, oh, well, that's Paul's words. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the Bible. This is the Word of God. Paul is the vehicle, every much as much as Isaiah was and 
and uh, all the Old Testament prophets and, and the apostles who wrote the Gospels. The entire Bible was written by men, and as Peter tells us, men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote down the Word of God. This is Scripture. Here's what he says. Do you not know that the unrighteous... It's not nice to call people unrighteous, is it? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's the good news. I love these, this part of the Bible. We get this list, and you go, ugh. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, that is, made holy, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. What was the remedy for, these, for those who had committed these sins? The grace of God the work of God, the salvation of God, the gospel. He says, such were some of you, but you have been changed. You've been washed. You've been cleaned up. You've been made pure. The gospel has changed your mind. It has changed your heart, which is a change of perspective. Our culture promotes the idea that if it feels good, it must be right. If you desire it, it must be natural, and you and it must be okay. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, But the natural man, the sinful man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I was thinking about this the other day. It really is, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. Either, as Paul writes in other places, either we are to be pitied above all men because we believe in the resurrection. Either that's the case. Either what we believe is totally a lie, high in the sky, and we should just be looked at with some pity as fools. Paul says he's a fool for Christ's sake. But you know you're somebody's fool. What's the alternative? You see, if Christ did rise from the dead, if he is who he says he is, if the Bible is true, then who needs to be pitied? Those who believe it or those who don't? Those are the two alternatives. Somebody needs to be pitied. Now, it's important for us, uh, again, to remember that none of us are born pure, so... We begin by acknowledging that we're impure. Talking about how are we going to get pure? First, let's acknowledge that we're not. The degree of that impurity varies depending on whether we have nursed that impurity. The Bible tells us that part of the work of the gospel is is to enable us to overcome impurity. It gives us promises of reconciliation in relationships, of restoration, and of cleansing. You don't need cleansing if you're not dirty, if you're not impure. 
We need to be washed and made white as snow. It's important for us not to think that we are pure and that our goal is simply to maintain purity in ourselves or in our children. We start out impure, and and that's our tendency. That is our inclination. And while it doesn't always manifest itself outwardly in a way that everyone else can see, we spend a good bit of time trying to cover up our impurity. It's naive to assume of ourselves and of our children that impurity is not present. That impurity, or or to assume that impurity is always something that is outside of us. Jesus clearly tells us that impurity is not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. It's our hearts, it's our minds, it's us, it's our thoughts. We're the problem. To the pure, all things are pure. Now, there are inducements in a sinful world. There are temptations, things outside of ourselves that feed our impurity, that lead us to tap into that natural impurity. And we need to understand that the very heart and the very work of the gospel has to do with our abiding or standing impurity, which includes sexual impurity. Since the corruption begins with us, the purity is going to have to begin with us. In other words, I could give you all kinds of things to do right now to go home and, you know, put guards on your Internet and, and control this and control that and put up fences. And we'll talk about that some next week, why that's important to be helpful. But if, if we get this wrong, if we don't get this right, that won't matter. First, our hearts. If this point is missed, then all else is lost. Every other strategy will fail. If you don't see a clear love for Jesus Christ and the gospel, then the tools of resistance are missing. If we are to become pure, it must start with the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Humble yourself before God. James 4, 7-10. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so one of the issues that we're going to see is a problem, and we'll see more about it in a moment, is our double-mindedness. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to live like a Christian. I don't want to think like a Christian. I want to think this other way. So I got both things going on. And, and he says, you know, here's the starting place. Wherever you are, draw near to God. And you know how to do that. If you don't, come see me. You've been told, most of you, all your life, you know what to do to draw near to God. Now the question is, are you doing that? And if you're not, then I'm not surprised if you're having difficulties in the area of sexual purity. And remember, repentance is a work of the Spirit of God. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, 
I will dwell in them, walk among them. I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be holy, or be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Are you perfecting? Now, we're perfecting. Are you maturing in holiness? Are you becoming more like Christ because you've drawn near to God? That is the only way to beat this. The only way. It is the Spirit that empowers and enables us. We read in 2 Timothy 2, 19-22, The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, and some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of the latter, he will be a vessel of honor sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Now notice the conclusion he draws here. You got this? Basically he's saying, clean house. You got stuff in your life that doesn't belong there. You got these beautiful vessels over here, and you got these others over here that don't fit. Get rid of those. Cleanse your house of those things. And he concludes with this. Flee also youthful lust. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That means having godly friends who are trying to do the same thing. 1 John 1, 7-9, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, I tell you, you know, I don't know what your past is. I don't really, this sounds wrong, but I'm going to say it, I don't really care. I do care. I care if you're hurting. I care if you need help. But I'm, I don't, I'm not your judge, and we shouldn't be each other's judge. God's our judge. If you've sinned, confess it. Confession just means agree with God. Go to God and say, Lord, you're right. I did wrong. Here's what I did. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And that means he's not going to bring it up anymore either. He's not going to hold it against you. He's going to let you start over. And then he'll cleanse you, it says, 1 John 1, 9, from all unrighteousness. Purity. How do I get pure? I've got to be cleansed. How do I get cleansed? Start by confessing your sins to God, asking his forgiveness, receiving his forgiveness, and then he says, I'll clean up the rest. There are parts you may not know and see and understand and comprehend, but I will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The Word of God applied by the Spirit of God. How can a young man cleanse his way? How can he be made pure? Psalm 119, 9-11. By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Here's the key part. If you're not doing this, you're going to be in trouble. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. 
Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we'll be talking about that some more next week, about hiding God's word in our heart as one of the key ways we have of fighting these temptations. So that's our hearts. Now what about our minds? When I see folks falling into sexual sins, I know that it started with an impure heart, but I also know that there are ideas that are contrary to the Word of God that have also taken root in their thinking. There is a double-mindedness that um, is contrary to the Word of God uh, it, that thinks both godliness and sexual impurity can somehow coexist. James 4, 7-8 again tells us that uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And, and so it makes it clear that these two things cannot coexist. Sometimes people have this idea, well, I'll sin and God will forgive me. So you, don't take, you don't take God's forgiveness as some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. That's destructive. God may still love you and he may still forgive you, but the consequences of your sin are going to... The idea of true repentance is to say... I'm not only turning from this, I not only want to be cleansed of it, forgiven of it, I don't want to do it anymore. I need help. I need to change. This isn't good for me, and it's not good for anybody else. Notice the contrast that we're given. So these two things can't coexist. Romans 8, 5 through 7. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. For the carnally, the fleshly-minded, is death. fleshly mind is death. But to the spiritually-minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Again, notice the contrast between a follower of Jesus and how he thinks compared with an unbeliever. Ephesians 4, 20-24. Here's this amazing contrast Paul sets out. Here's an unbeliever's way of thinking and living, and here's you. You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. And so if we're to be made pure, then it'll necessarily involve changing the way we think about such things. Titus 1, 15-16, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, so these are all professing believers, churchgoers, but in, work, in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So whatever you're filling your mind with has everything to do with what you do and with what you will become. Finally, brethren... Paul writes in Philippians 4.8, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue 
And anything, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Put garbage in, you get garbage out. Put godliness in, you're going to get godliness out. And then third, so we're talking about our hearts need to be changed by the work of God. Our minds need to be changed by the Word of God. And now our bodies. We are not Gnostics. We don't divide the body and the spirit. Sexual impurity, having started in the heart and taken root in our thoughts, works itself out into our bodies and into our flesh. Romans 12, 1 and 2, therefore Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living, uh, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is only reasonable. He saved you. He wants all of you, not just your intellect and not just some, some sentimental sense in your heart. He wants your whole body. That's a reasonable expectation. And do not be conformed to this world, don't act like the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. The Bible tells us that the marriage bed is undefiled. It's pure. That's where we take this gift of sexuality and use it to the glory of God. This is the place of holiness. This is the place of separateness. Sexuality is not the sin. It's what we do with that sexuality that makes the difference. Tools are good when they're used for the right purpose. They can be destructive when misused. Hammers are good for nails. They're not good for repairing teacups. And when we try to use sexuality in a way that God said not to use it, it has the same effect. When you were united to Christ in baptism, you were engrafted into the body of Christ. You are now part of Him. You represent Him. 1 Corinthians six fifteen through 20 Do you not know? How many times Paul starts, <laughs> Don't you know this? Do you not know that your bodies, your bodies, are members of Christ? And by the way, young ladies, that's why you, don't, you shouldn't be out there flaunting your bodies. It's Christ's body, not yours. You represent Him. And He doesn't really care how great your legs are. Or any other of your body parts. You should be lovely, you should be feminine, you should be attractive. But Jesus doesn't need you to be sexy. Save that for your husband. That'll be just fine right there. Nobody else needs that. Men, don't you be looking upon others, other young ladies. I don't care how they're dressed. You have a responsibility to represent Christ with your body and how you conduct yourself with your thoughts. Shall I then take the members of Christ, that's me and you, shall I take, I'm a member of Christ, Shall I take the members of Christ, the body parts of Christ, and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? In other words, you're supposed to be one body with Christ. For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Here's the conclusion. Flee sexual immorality. Get away from it. Run from it. Don't run toward it. Don't flirt with it. Run from it. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You don't belong to you if you belong to Christ. If you want to belong to you, then say so. Say, I don't want to belong to Christ. I want to do it my way. For you were bought at a price. Did Jesus buy you? Did Jesus purchase you with his blood? If the answer is yes, then finish the verse, the last verse. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your spirit and your body belong to him, not to you. He purchased you. Now, sanctification is the work of the Spirit of God. The concepts of holiness, purity, cleanliness, the laws of cleanliness all have to do with separation. The lack of defilement, corruption, and association with having touched something that contaminates. And so the question is, are you going to use your sexuality to honor the Lord? That's the fundamental question before we get to some of the ways we can help guard ourselves. And so I'll read one more passage, and we'll close. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8. Anybody here want to, know, want to do the will of God? I want to know what the will of God is. Well, here it is. It starts with these words. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, your holiness, your purity, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, of all sorts, of any sort, that you, each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification, in holiness and honor. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother. Remember, sin is always stealing defrauding someone. It's taking what's not yours. So when you have conduct yourself in a sexually immoral way with someone else that's not your husband or wife, then you're stealing. You're defrauding your brother. So no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, he, this is really, this is a great way to close here. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man. There's a great argument there. You know, somebody said, well, Paul wrote that. Well, yeah, Paul says, you reject this, you're not rejecting me. 
Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us the Holy Spirit. And so sexual purity begins with an absolute, total, genuine commitment to Jesus Christ. And so parents will talk more about how you have to really be focused on that almost more than anything else. There are other things to do, but they're really minor compared to this. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your warnings. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for the gospel and for the hope that it gives us who, who are impure by nature and are inclined to all kinds of impurity. But we're thankful that there's finally hope for us. There's help for us. There's forgiveness for our sins. There's the cleansing of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in our lives to change us, to empower us. There is the work of your word to inform us and change our minds. There is the fellowship of the saints that will help us in this journey. And thank you for the families you've given us and a church that will preach the word. Help us now, Lord, to set out on this glorious journey to become like our Savior, who indeed is pure. We pray in his name. Amen.